So we are continuing our study of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Timothy, this young pastor, uh, protege of, of Timothy's really, has spent many years with Paul seeing Paul's ministry, seeing the boldness and the confidence of Paul, Paul's faith, even being in prison. And now Timothy is pastoring on his own in Ephesus, a place that was full of heresy, it was full of idolatry, it was full of all sorts of immorality. And young Timothy is pastoring in this church and challenged by no doubt a lot of people older than himself who understood Judaism, understood the law, and probably were coming up to Timothy and trying to correct him very often on the things he was saying. But Timothy had to stand firm. And the first thing that we've seen in chapter 1 is that Paul really encourages Timothy to stand firm in regard to sound doctrine. And then as we've come into chapter 2, we see again, Paul just emphasized the importance of prayer. We said this last time that prayer is so important. It begins, we just look at the first verse of this. I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks. There's four things that are listed there. We looked at those last week. That those things, that they be made for all men. We should be always praying. And first of all, it's the first thing that we should be doing. And as we said last week, the first part of this chapter really is very much given over to the men of the church. And the second half of the chapter is given over to the teaching regarding the ladies in the church. This is all about the order, how things should function in God's church. And we read for kings and for, this is what we should be praying for, for kings and all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And we commented on those things last time. We only got through the first four verses, so these... Verse 3 and 4 says, for this is good. It's good that we pray for those in authority. It's good that we pray all the time. We're told it's good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. The the Greek word that we have there for good really emphasizes something intrinsically good. It's not just a kind of casual thing. Um, But the idea is, again, that it's fair, it's beautiful, uh, is the idea that, that it pleases God. And we're told who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Notice one of the key reasons we pray is that people will be saved. And some of the things that Peter often shares with us here on Sundays, you know, is that nobody has come to the Lord without someone else praying for them. You know, I think, I mean, whether that's entirely true in all of history, I don't know, but as a general truth, it's, it's there. And it shows us how important it is that we pray for people. And it's not wasted because this is something that's pleasing to God. It's beautiful to God when he sees us praying for other people, for those that are not yet saved. The purpose of prayer, as we've said many times before, is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. You know, And prayer, as Chuck Misler has said a number of times in his studies, is a way of God enlisting you in what he's doing. And we should see prayer as, as that. You know, prayer is an opportunity for us to get involved in this in this fight that we're in. John a few weeks ago was reminding us of how we should be aware of the spiritual warfare. And you know, this chapter actually is a lot about spiritual warfare. We'll, we'll see more in a while. You know, prayer is one of the great things that we're given in the, the list of armor we have. Prayer is like the heavy artillery. 
It's this weapon that we've got, that we can go against the, the wiles, the, the, the designs of the enemy, those thoughts again that are built up in people's minds against the knowledge of God. It's through prayer that those strongholds can come down. You know, in Scripture we see Pharisees praying for the purpose of being praised by men. You know, they had long, elaborate prayers and so on. They, they let people know when they were praying. They wanted people to see it. You know, or they wanted other worshippers to look on and see how great they were. That's not the kind of prayer that we're talking about. You know, this is prayer sometimes, you know, in a mix of the congregation, it's great. When we have our prayer meetings, it's great. But sometimes these are the prayers that we pray on our own. Prayers that we pray sometimes when tears maybe roll down our face. Where the Lord really touches us for those that are not yet saved. And when we pray in earnest like that, God hears. And we don't always see the results instantly, but not a, not a prayer is wasted. There was a, a couple, I believe they were Chinese. I remember they were speaking at uh, Carroll Chapel Costa Mesa uh, last year. And they were talking about their son. And or they, they'd become Christians and he'd kind of grown up with them in, in this environment, but had rebelled. He didn't want to know anything about Jesus and had got into a life of crime. He was imprisoned eventually for supplying uh, Class A drugs. And he just completely messed his life up. He was into all sorts of horrible things. I won't give you the list this morning. It'll ruin your lunch. But things that he was into, you don't want to know. And, and his mom had just kept this list every day where she prayed for him. And she just had this long roll of paper where day after day after day, year after year after year, she'd been praying for her son. And it got to the point that her son had overdosed in prison and he was about to die. And somehow, miraculously, he pulled through. And eventually, guess what's going to happen here? The Lord worked in his heart, worked in his life. After years of rejecting everything his mum said, he became a Christian. And it was years, I, mean, it was, I think it was about 16 or, or, or more years that every day his mum had been praying. In our the family, the three of them, go around and they witness, they, they preach together and they share their, their testimony of what God has done so that other people would hear the good news of the gospel. Prayer really does work. Just because we don't necessarily see an instant result you know, we live in an instant culture, don't we? Everything is kind of instant. Coffee's instant. But you know as well as I do that proper coffee takes a little bit longer. But it does. Sometimes we need to invest a bit of time in things and, and really be patient. But we see God move. We see God work. <clears throat> and, of course, one of the greatest verses in Scripture that God so loved the world, all mankind, that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, this is a statement of fact. This is... This is the God that is calling Paul to write this letter to Timothy, who is called to pastor this church, and reminding him to pray and to pray for all men. Because God has not given up on this world. We know that the multitude will go to hell. But there's no individual before death whose eternity is sealed. Everybody has got that opportunity of repenting, of putting their trust in Jesus Christ. And many scriptures tell us that God's desire is that all men come to the knowledge of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, how many people right at the end of their lives have 
finally put their faith and trust in Jesus. It's never too late, but you don't want to leave it that long. You don't know how long you've got. None of us do. And why would we want to wait when it's such a blessing to know our Creator? So we get into the next section where we lift off from last week. So we're told that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What a great statement that is and how politically incorrect that is because the world would love us to say there's lots of ways to God, multiple paths you can take. You know, if you want to believe in Hinduism, and that's fine, that's your path to God, or Buddhism, that's your path. Or if you want to be a Muslim, that's fine, that's your path to God. And our head of the Church of England said last week, we, we looked at those comments he made, it doesn't matter whether you're, you're, you're Protestant or Catholic, yeah, all roads are leading to the same place. Well, actually that's kind of true in a sense. But there's only one road that leads to heaven. All the other roads are leading to the same place. And it's so sad because, you know, the world would love us to believe that there is multiple choice and we can accept any option. And, and people that try and say that there is only one way, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or, or we're narrow-minded, we're dogmatic. Well, yeah, because there is only one cure. You know, we said before, if you went to the doctor and the doctor spent 10 minutes telling you about this terminal disease you have, and then finally just said, but there is a cure, you need to drink raspberry juice. And you went, raspberry juice? Don't like raspberry juice. Can't I drink apple juice? Yeah, they'd be foolish. You know, there is a cure. Whether you like the cure or not, there is a cure for the problem of sin. There is only one cure. When I speak to Muslims at work, the, cha- the challenge I bring them is, what about sin? How do you deal with the problem of sin? There is no religion, there is no faith, belief, or system on earth that deals with sin except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came with the express purpose of dealing with the problem of sin. We have all fallen short of God's standard. None of us are righteous, right with God. That's what that word simply means. None of us are right with God. God has set his standard. It's very clear. We have the law. The law shows God's perfection. And none of us can meet that standard. We've done this before. You know the the way it goes. Every one of us this morning here has told a lie at some point. Well, that makes us liars. You know, we, we've all probably at some point taken something that didn't belong to us. That makes us thieves. doesn't matter the quantity. doesn't matter how long ago it was. Time doesn't change anything. You know, people talk about taking the Lord's name in vain. And, and many people just to use God's name as a, as a swear word, as an expletive. But even Christians take God's name upon themselves. They they, they call themselves Christians, but don't live to that standard that Jesus has given us. They let him down by their lifestyles. You know, by God's standard, and look, even if you want to come up with your own standard, give you a week, I guarantee you'll break your own rules and your own laws. None of us can keep any standard, be it our own and certainly not God's. So we, it's very easy to realize that we are sinful people. We've fallen short, and there is only one solution, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. And unless we accept that God's wrath for us fell upon Jesus in our place, unless we accept that, there is no salvation. There is no other way. Paul again reminds Timothy, for there is one God, 
and one mediator, just one. There's no others. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And what a statement that is, the man Christ Jesus. You know that Jesus gave up the glory and the majesty of heaven, and yes, he is still God, but he is man. And Jesus will remain a man for eternity. That was the choice he made, to join us in our predicament so that he could rescue us. In fact, one suggested translation of this actually says, rather, the man, Christ Jesus. It says, Christ Jesus himself, man. Now, this is the one mediator. All prayer is based on the work of Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our mediator. You know, when we pray... The only reason we can pray and we can come before God, a holy God, and we can come into God's presence is because of Jesus, which is why when we pray, we should be praying in Jesus' name, in the name of Jesus. Anything we submit to God the Father needs to be in Christ's name. We can't go and offer in our own name. We have no merit by which we can stand before God. And when we pray, we need to go and pray in Jesus' name. But again, there's only one God, so there's only need for one mediator, and that is, of course, Jesus. No other person can qualify. No angels, not saints. We had a new saint this week, didn't we? Of course, that's utter nonsense. The Bible speaks of all of us as being saints. Mary on her own. It is, the world would love the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, wherever you go, there's always suggestions of how we might get to God or please God. or No, there is only one way. And we're told, speaking of Jesus, and this is the qualification, this is what I was saying a moment ago, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Well, we are here this morning testifying of what he's done. And Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. The idea... Calvinists have this idea of what they call limited atonement, that Jesus only died for those who are saved. Nonsense. So many verses in Scripture make it clear that Jesus died for all. The only reason people will go to hell is for not accepting that Jesus has done it all. In 1 John we're told that Jesus is the propitiation or the payment in full for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Jesus has paid for everybody's sin, past, present, future. It's paid for already. But unless you avail yourself of it, unless you receive it, unless you accept it for yourself, it's meaningless. It can't help you unless you make it your own. What is given in exchange for another is the price of his redemption. That's what this idea is, is ransom. I just want to give you this uh, gospel according to... Barabbas. Barabbas stood under the righteous condemnation of the law. He was where he was. He deserved to be that he was guilty. Barabbas knew the one who was to take his cross and take his place was innocent, i.e. Jesus. Remember Jesus and Barabbas, the Jewish leadership encouraged the crowd to call for Barabbas to be released, this criminal, this murderer. So Barabbas knew full well that Jesus was innocent. He was taking his place. Barabbas was going free because Jesus was being taken. He knew that Jesus was a true substitute for him. Barabbas knew that he'd done nothing to merit going free while another took his place. 
Barabbas knew that Christ's death was for him perfectly efficacious. It covered his debt by Christ dying in his place. As long as they had someone to die, that was all that was needed at this point. And Christ stepped forward and said, effectively, take me. Because Jesus could have argued his way. Jesus could have called for angels. He could have done anything. He shut his mouth. He said nothing because he was standing there as the condemned. So effectively, Barabbas and Jesus changed places. The murderers, bonds, curse, disgrace, and the mortal agony were all transferred to the righteous Jesus. While the liberty, the innocence, the safety, the well-being of the Immaculate Nazarene became the lot of Barabbas, of the murderer. Barabbas is installed in all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ. While the latter, while Jesus enters upon all the infamy and horror of the rebel's position. Both mutually inherit each other's situation and what they possess. The delinquents' guild and cross became the lot of the just one. And the civil rights and immunities of the latter are the property of the delinquents. By a man by the name of John W. Lawrence. You know, and that should resonate because it's exactly what happened for us. It is intended to be a picture that we were guilty. And just as Barabbas is set free, knowing full well that he should have gone to that cross, well, so Jesus goes to the cross instead of us. Paul carries on speaking of these things, and, and it says, Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. He says, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. Now, it's interesting because he's speaking to Timothy. Timothy knew him. And he doesn't even really need to say, I'm telling you the truth. Timothy knew he was telling the truth. But Paul just emphasizes the fact that it's God that had called him. God had ordained him a preacher to preach this message of salvation. He said, and an apostle. These two things. Preacher, the Greek word, uh, kerax, is a herald or a messenger vested with public authority who conveyed the official messages of kings. That's the word that's used, the preacher. It's interesting, isn't it? The authority that a, a preacher has to convey this message. The message from a king or from a magistrate, from a prince or a military commander who gave a public summons or demand and performed various other duties. In the New Testament, God's ambassador. That's what a preacher is. And a herald or proclaimer of the divine word. If we look at the word, we've got an apostle there. It's just meaning a, a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. I mean, Paul has already spoken in the opening verse that he was a, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandments. It's a military term. By the command of God, our Savior. Again, this apostle will specifically have these orders. And this term, apostle, is specifically applied to the, uh, the 12 apostles of Jesus. In a broader sense, it's applied to other eminent Christian teachers, like Barnabas, Timothy, Sylvanius, and so on. Sadly, it's used 
a lot today, certainly in certain denominations and groups. Um, certain individuals like to adopt the title apostle. I don't really think there's any scriptural grounding for that whatsoever, but if they want to take the name, that's fine. I think it speaks a lot about their humility or lack of. <clears throat> Paul carries on and says, I will therefore, this is it, this is what I want. He's speaking of what he's been called to do and what he's doing. And he says, I will therefore, and this is speaking now about ordering the church and what should happen, that men pray everywhere. Speaking to Christian men. Men in Timothy's church, men in this church. This is instruction for the men. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, we've already seen in the previous session, we were looking about our attitude towards government. The way that we shouldn't be subversive. We shouldn't be trying to bring the establishment down. You know, our attitude should be such that we don't approach things with wrath and with doubting. You know, some people are like that, aren't they? They're skeptical of everything. They don't believe anything. No, no. Paul's saying that we should have the right attitude of heart. And particularly when we pray. He said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. And it's not saying that when we pray, we have to pray with our hands in the air. That's not what it's saying. I'll show you in a minute. There's a number of scriptures that show different postures that we can pray in. It's not talking about the physical posture. It's talking about the posture of the heart. That's how it should be. Holy hands really speaks of a clean life. Clean hands, a blameless life. A couple of scripture, scripture references there you can look up if you want to. But this is how we should be. And it's interesting, this is for the men. You know, we need to, when we get together, have our prayer meetings. Men, if you can, come along. This is what Paul says to Timothy, should be the way a church should function. That the men should get together. We should come together and we should pray. We should pray everywhere. We should pray at all times, for all people. Without anger, without any side, without any malice, without any of those things. Again, without any doubting or disputing. We should pray in faith. We're told in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. How it pleases God when we come to him in faith, when we pray in faith. And remember what we said last time, when we talk about praying in faith, we're praying in Christ. We're praying according to the things that have been revealed in God's word. It's not just a, a hoping that something might be. It's praying with certainty. Just to show you, we don't have to raise our hands. Speaking of the heart, as I say, you know, we see people in Scripture praying with outstretched hands. We do. But we also see people praying and kneeling, standing, sitting, bowing the head, lifting the eyes, and falling on the ground. So you can choose how you pray. It doesn't matter. There's not a physical recommendation here. Just that we do pray, and particularly that the men should be praying. It's interesting, in a lot of churches, a lot of church meetings, certainly over the years that I've observed, it's often the ladies that get together and pray. And it's a good thing, I'm not discouraging that at all. But Paul is encouraging Timothy to encourage the men to be praying. You see, there's a spiritual warfare element to this, and we'll build on it as we go on. Because then we get to one of the most challenging passages in the New Testament. Certainly, it's one that a lot of people have a real problem with. 
Because he then switches and says, in like manner. What is he saying? Because that's really the key for the whole of this next section. In like manner. Well, everything he said to the man so far has all been about our attitude of heart. About being submissive. That's what he's just said to the men. Men, you need to submit to the government, to the authorities. You need not to challenge and try to be subversive. You need to understand your place. You need to understand that we are under the government and we need to let the world see that we respect that so that they will see also that we're under the government of God. You know, most of the the, the people in this world want to be their own bosses. I'm not even talking about employment. I'm talking about in terms of running their own life. People don't want somebody else to tell them what to do. People reject the idea of God, not because there's not evidence or proof, but because they don't want to be accountable. And yet, through the New Testament, time and time again, we get this idea coming that we need to be accountable to each other. And certainly, as men, we need to be accountable to God. And people reject Christianity because they don't like that. Well, the first part of this chapter has been telling the men that we need to be willing to submit. And we're going to see the same now for the ladies. But a particular order is given. In like manner, in the same way also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. He's going to talk about the attitude of your heart. With shamefacedness and sobriety. Not with broided or braided hair, with gold or pearls or costly array, broided or plaited, but which becomes women professing godliness with good works. This is speaking about the way you dress, your, your appearance, and why you look the way you do. Now, it's not decrying jewellery. It's not saying that you can't wear makeup. I've, the words we get, we're looking at it, I think, in the moment. Cosmos, the word from which we get cosmetics, means to bring order out of chaos. You know, we are grateful, aren't we, for cosmetics? I, I, I a number of times... And um, I'm sure Adrian will testify to this, sitting on trains a lot of his life, like I do. I've gone on a train sometimes in the morning, and some individual, so a lady, sat down opposite me, and you naturally just look up and you know, sometimes you nod a kind of good morning nod. And on a particular occasion, a lady sat down, and she was nothing special to look at, and I just carried on. I was working on my laptop. At the end of the journey, I looked up, and there's this beautiful, stunning lady there. And it's like, what happened? And God, she'd been the whole journey, she'd been doing her makeup. I thought, that's really not quite fair, is it? Because there's nothing wrong with this. Paul is not saying that we shouldn't look good, we shouldn't look after ourselves. But there is an issue here. And certainly going on in the church at this time, and in the culture at this time, people were going over the top. The the fashion and the, the looks had become everything. And people's opinion of you mattered so much. And, and sadly, we do still fall victim to that today, don't we? We get so much fed to us about how we should look. The whole advertising marketplace is all about telling you what you should look like, what you should wear, how you should present yourself. And really what Paul's saying here is that, you know, the most important thing is your relationship with God. 
It's inward beauty that really counts. It's not what's on the outside. Again, glamour is external. Godliness is internal. It's been said before that beauty is only skin deep, but ugliness goes clear through. You know, it doesn't matter how attractive somebody may seem, if they've got a an unkind nature, an unforgiving spirit, it's very soon noticed, it's very soon seen, and beauty means nothing in those contexts. It goes on and says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection. Likewise. Okay, you, see, you, see, you follow the thread through here. In the same way, we're still talking about the attitude of heart. You wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. Not to other people's husbands, but to your own husbands. That if any obey not the words, they may also, without the word, be won by, your, by the conversation of the wives. He's speaking about godly wives, Christian wives. He's saying maybe you have an unchristian husband. Well, by your attitude, by your willingness to submit, they will see in you that attitude. In the same way that people should be able to look at men and our relationship and our attitude towards government shouldn't be one of always trying to tear down or, or pull down, but should be one of respect. And that should win people for the Lord. That's the whole point. And, and Paul's, or Peter here, this is in Peter, Peter saying that this is the way also for, for wives it should be. And if you have an, an unsaved husband, well, regardless of actually whether they're saved or unsaved, wives should not be trying to constantly pull down their husbands, trying to embarrass them or make them look foolish or silly. Yet we've got a, a bit of a cultural problem because, you know, we have so much subconsciously that comes through TV and the media and so on that tries to belittle the husband's role in the family. I mean, you've only got to look at things like The Simpsons. And you have just this big, fat, incompetent dad that can't rule and run his family. You know, and that's a typical stereotype. And it comes through in many films and many of the programs on TV. But that's not the way that Christian wives should be. It says, whilst they hold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. You know, again, it's talking about the attitude of your heart. Peter here talking about the attitude of your heart and the way that it will affect other people. He says, who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning. And he's saying the same thing as Paul says, of plaiting the hair and of wearing gold or of putting on apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. For after this manner in old time, the holy women also trusted in God, adorned themselves, being subjection unto their own husbands. You see, they adorn themselves. It's not a problem again. Jewelry is, is not, there's a number of occasions in scripture where you see people wearing jewelry. That's not the issue. Makeup's not the problem, but it's the heart in all of these things. And we give these couple of examples. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Interestingly, I mean, today feminists would hate these kind of verses and they tell us that they're outdated, that Paul and Peter were wrong. But, you know, these come from the Word of God and we'll see in a moment that this isn't something that is cultural. You know, the, the, the ideas that are put forward in Scripture were as abhorrent to many people at the time as they are today. 
as if these are the words we mentioned a moment ago. The adorn, it means to arrange, put in order. That word modest is the idea of being well arranged. It relates to the Greek word cosmos again, bring order out of chaos, as I said. So where we get cosmetics from. The word sobriety, though, also, is this having a sound mind, self-control, good sense. Braided hair, again, the term is referring just to various different hairstyles. Uh, just as a, an aside here, um, Pliny the Elder, who was a first century Roman historian, uh, he described the dress of uh, Lilia Paulina, the wife of Emperor Caligula, uh, which was worth several hundred thousand dollars by today's standards, apparently. And these were the kind of things that were parade and people trying to teach the standard. And I guess it's a little bit like we have today with people wanting to wear, you know, Gucci or Prada or whatever those particular brands are that are the, the top ones at the time. Philo, a first century Jewish philosopher, described a prostitute as wearing gold chains, bracelets, and hair done up in an elaborate and gaudy braids, eyes marked with pencil lines, eyebrows smothered in paint and wearing expensive clothes lavishly embroidered again to try and seduce. And sadly, a lot of ladies today, they wear what they wear. They put the makeup on in such a way they intend to seduce. Unfortunately, I see it a lot in the, the workplace. And it's sad because the kind of people that they're going to end up seducing are not really the kind of people they want. They don't see that far, unfortunately. But then we get on to this verse that just caused a lot of controversy. Paul says to Timothy, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. How do we deal with this? Well, I think it's helpful just to understand that the word that's used here literally means to rank under. It has to do with authority and not with value or ability. You know, it's very much as we have in 1 Corinthians 11, where we have an order given to us by God. We have God, and we have Jesus. We have man, and we have woman. And, of course, you can ask the question, is Jesus any less than God? No. Is woman any less than man? No. But for the sake of the order, Jesus was willing to submit himself to his Father. This is the order that God has established. Now, again... There is an element of a cultural thing here because in the church at Ephesus at this time, it was apparently a problem where a number of the women were interrupting meetings to ask questions and so on. And so the idea is that they should learn the word silence, actually the word peaceably. And really what Paul is trying to accomplish here is, is teaching to Timothy is really what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 40, where he says, let all things be done decently and in order. He's speaking about the way we do things within the church system. Now, we have a number of women in the Bible. Of course, we've got Deborah. But you see, even Deborah is very interesting, because people will often cite Deborah as a leader. But they were in a time of war. And what does Deborah do? Well, she pushes Barak forward. Effectively, in terms of the fighting... She's prepared to submit. Although she's clearly a leader and God calls her and uses her, no question, in a spiritual sense, she puts the man first. Ruth does the same thing. Queen Esther does the same thing. You see, we're talking about spiritual warfare here. We're talking about God's order. We're talking about the way the church should be. Think of it in this way, that in God's economy, in God's order of things, 
in a spiritual war, God says that he wants the men to go first. We actually see a kind of reverse of that with Jacob. Jacob is very cowardly when he comes back into the land to face Esau, his brother. And what does he do? Sends the women and the children first. It's the wrong way round. In spiritual warfare, God sends the men out first. And why? Because the men should be those that have been praying already. So the men have been called to pray. The men go out. The women should be willing to submit in this order that God has established. Women, it's true, did have a, a very low place in Roman society. But you know what? The Gospels completely changed that. You know, Jesus first revealed his Messiahship to a woman, and, and women are treated with dignity and with respect all the way through the New Testament. It was interesting that only a woman recognized the announcement of Jesus' forthcoming death. Of course, we see women were at the cross. And they were the first herald of the news of the resurrection. Paul says to Timothy this, I I do not suffer a woman to teach or usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now, Paul interprets the meaning of what he said back in verse 11 and defines exactly what he means by women staying quiet in the worship services. He doesn't allow, he wouldn't allow a woman to teach because God's order was such that that role is given to the men. Yes, it's a very patriarchal system, but we see it all the way through the word of God and God never changes on this. The word, by the way, to be a teacher <clears throat> this is uh, from Chuck Nisley. He says, by using the present infinitive, this is in the Greek grammatical structure, rather than the aorist infinitive, Paul does not forbid women to teach under appropriate conditions and circumstances, but not to fulfill the office and role of pastor or teacher in the life of the church. And you know, there are a number of examples of women teaching in Scripture. I mean, certainly older women are permitted to teach the younger. We have women here that teach the children. Timothy, we know, was taught by his mother and by his grandmother. Grandma, I dread to think where I would be if I hadn't been taught by my mum and my grandmother. My grandmother was such a big influence on me. And many of the scriptural insights and the things I've learned over the years, I've got from my mum. Paul's going to be wanting to address that. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with a, a woman instructing a man in private. We even see examples of that in Acts chapter 18 with Apollos. But a woman should not try to take the place of the man. And the role of pastor is one that Scripture makes very clear, is a role that is given to a man. The role of elder is the role for a man. When we have elders' meetings, we do invite the wives to come along because we believe that as one flesh, there shouldn't be things that are kept from each other. And notice the the arguments that Paul now puts forward. He says, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. Do you see what happens when the woman goes first into battle? It doesn't end well. You see, this situation with, with Eve was not a cultural one. This comes right down to 
the, the, the creation. And it builds on this. <coughs> Paul says that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And so an argument from creation and an argument from the fall, not cultural at all. See, Satan deceived the woman into to sinning. Man sinned with his eyes wide open. Interestingly, we're told that Adam was not deceived when he ate of the fruit. He knew exactly what he was doing. He entered into the same predicament that the woman was now in because of his love for her, to rescue her, just as Christ did for his church. See, the disorder we have in society today results from a violation of the God-given order. We see the breakup of families. We see all these ideas and stereotypes that are fed to us all the time. But both men and women are gullible and easily deceived. Adam, so Abraham, we find, listened to his wife and got in trouble. Uh, but later, it's actually her counsel that God tells him to obey. Both of them had issues. But then we end the chapter with this rather strange verse. And I'll be honest with you, I'm still not 100% sure that I understand what it really means. But I'll give you what commentators have said and what I think it's saying. It is notwithstanding, speaking of the woman, she shall be saved in childbearing if they, the children, continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, some have suggested that this could be referring to the fact that the seed came through the woman to Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is our saviour. It's because woman gave birth that we have a saviour and, and so on. But that doesn't seem to really fit the context here. But the, the, just to highlight as well, the word saved there is to rescue or to preserve. It's used a number of times, not necessarily in regards to salvation itself. But a number of times it's used, you can see, just without reference to spiritual salvation. What we seem to have here, very well, this is the clear part, that the woman's primary responsibility, her primary ministry, is the home and the family. Now again, that doesn't go down too well these days. This doesn't preclude women from having careers, but this is the primary ministry, as Scripture would seem to have it for us. You know, Scripture doesn't imply in any way that women are second-class citizens because their responsibility is rearing children. But the influence that women have by raising godly children, by even influencing their husbands, there's a lot more we could say, but we can maybe talk further some other time, and there's more that we'll cover as we go through um, these things anyway. But God has a particular order. It's there because it works, because this is what God has established. And when we step outside of God's order, we'll end up with issues and with problems. And sadly, there are many churches that have many problems because they don't choose to follow God's order. And they'll start rejecting one thing, then they'll reject something else, and then before you know it, Scripture's moved to one side entirely. And they just make it up as they go along. We are called to stand on the word, to hold fast the sound doctrine. So that's what we'll continue to do. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Father, the real lesson here for us, for men, for women, is the attitude of our hearts. Lord, are we each willing to submit? 
we should submit to one another in love. Men are to submit to the authorities that you have ordained as a witness to how we submit to you. The women are to submit to their own husbands as again an example of how they submit to you. Lord, you are interested in our hearts. And Lord, in all of these things, there comes that issue of trust. Are we prepared to trust you? Are we prepared to trust your plan for our lives? And Father, I pray you give us the courage and the boldness to do just that, to lead you to direct our paths. Lord, not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you. Father, just watch over us. Keep us close to you, we pray, through this week ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.